Would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in? And you won't be angry? I will not be angry. Abby someone. Abby someone. Abby who? Abby normal. Hi, this is the Abby Normal Podcast. Are you in the right place? Did you listen to the Not the Same series? If you did and you're returning, well, you're a whole nother level of weird. People that think religion is interesting. Or maybe you think the overturning of religion is interesting. What a diverse group we have here today. We're sailing away from the murky waters of evangelicalism, but not going too far because today we get to talk to our friend, Rachel. She was raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a.k.a. Mormons. The fact that I'm from Idaho and like, I don't know, there's like these, yeah, I look Mormon. I mean, I do look Mormon. I can find Mormons at the airport. I can find Mormons at amusement parks or restaurants, like seriously. And this conversation was super interesting because there's a lot of overlap between Rachel's story and those you heard from our evangelical friends. Apparently, the waters are pretty choppy over here, too. Like, I don't have any friends from growing up that are still currently Mormon. Not a single one. Rachel is currently in a season of doubt, fueled by the conflict between her personal values and the church's past and present practices predominantly related to race, gender, and sexuality. I'm sympathetic to this issue, not just sympathetic, like I'm like, I'll fight for this issue. So am I better being in the church advocating or out of the church, just like they'll figure it out. And there's a lot of hurt that's going to happen in the process. So all of that is coming, I promise. stoked to talk to Rachel because I grew up around a large Mormon population, and my knowledge was pretty shallow. Here's what I knew about them. First, they're hot. Second, they're nice. Third, they have a prophet. I knew this because I worked for Mormons, and a portrait of the prophet was hanging above my desk. Fourth, they wear holy underwear. Rachel gets questions about this one. Part of me, I'm like, I get it. I answer that question. I hate that question because I'm like, you know what? I never ask anybody about their underwear. I get that it's like the fascinating. Yeah. I'm sorry. Sure. No, it is. It is fascinating. Um, No, I do not. I did it one time. But that's all I knew for sure. In the evangelical, predominantly white church of California's Central Valley, the EWCCCV, there was a lot of shit talk about Mormons. Here's an example from my partner, Aaron. I definitely have a distinct memory of like our youth pastor taking stabs at like other religions, like making fun of Mormons. And this is one thing like I'm what I call this a happy or proud memory of like the kids I went to church with. But some students took him to task on that. Like, you want us to bring our friends here, but then if we do, you might make fun of them. How's that work? So that was, it's like my best memory, probably. <laughs> You're so proud. <laughs> of youth group. <laughs> what, what were the, like, this is some shit. What, what were the kind of 
jabs that he would make. I honestly don't remember, but I do remember that they were like usually geared towards Mormons. But Fresno was a pretty big like Mormon town. If you didn't go to an evangelical church, you probably went to one of the Mormon churches. Yeah, totally. I I remember, you know, I don't have like a distinct memory, but I do remember jokes being like sprinkled throughout. Any anything from like your holy underwear or the Bible wasn't found in America, you know, just like stuff like that, where we would know what they were referencing, but they wouldn't say straight out like Mormons are dumb, even though that's what they were implying. Yeah. And I don't remember if it was like masked a little bit like that, or if it was just straight up like three Mormons walk into a bar type punchline. I don't remember any specifics, but I do definitely remember jabs being taken. I don't remember if I was offended or not. I definitely had Mormon friends. Yep, this was a thing. There was a Mormon kid who inadvertently had to attend my Christian Protestant high school, and basically everyone was trying to save him. He did not go for it. So, if we go back to what I knew growing up, Mormons are really genuinely nice, so I never felt like the shit talk was warranted. I knew there were differing beliefs, but also, they're called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, so like, from my point of view, they were into Jesus, we were into Jesus, shouldn't we be friends? Well, I, I have to say, I appreciate you um, including me in the conversation, right? Because one of those big divides is that Mormons aren't Christians. So the fact that you're even including me in that, I appreciate that because, you know, Mormons are Christians, just not in the like, <laughs> not, I mean, that could be a whole thing on its own. But Today, Rachel is going to share with us what it's like being part of Mormon culture. And one of our biggest similarities is her desire to make change. There are commonalities in the experience of questioning and then trying to decide, do I stay or do I go? Where will I do the most good? How can I participate in a way that feels authentic? It's really hard to just go and then like become some other kind of Christian. And so a lot of people leave because basically they have issues with a doctrine or a principle and there's no way to reconcile it. And look, these conversations are not easy. They're personal, and talking about our own brand of weird can feel kind of vulnerable. I'm like, yeah, I guess maybe scared, not scared. Just like, it's very personal conversation, so. But I'm willing to have with you because I trust you. And if I get bold enough to be like, yeah, you can publish it, then. (laughs) Then we'll see. All right, she's willing, so it's time to get into it. Like anything, there's a spectrum of beliefs and behaviors. Rachel said that that workplace profit portrait was not part of her experience. Here's where Rachel's upbringing landed on that continuum. My family was not super strict Mormons in terms of like, like I definitely grew up in a family like where didn't drink tea and coffee, but like drank like soda, you know, but there are families out there where it's like, you don't drink soda or you don't eat chocolate or, you know, whatever. But in terms of like practice, like my family was a practicing, you know, Mormon family. So went to church on Sundays. My parents both participated in what are called like callings. So like 
you know, you're asked to like contribute in some way, whether that's teaching or ministering or whatever that is. So grew up definitely having parents that both participated in callings at different levels. Even recently, my dad was a bishop in the church, but not a bishop in like probably the way that a lot of people think about it. Like you don't have to go to, you know, have training or go to some um, religious school to become a bishop. It's just a calling. So it's like you volunteer to be a bishop. They're over the whole, the whole church for their area or for their geographical kind of region. The Mormon church is structured by geographic area. And there are some benefits that come from a setup like that. So the Mormon church is all about like order. So at a really local level, there's something called a ward. So one thing I do like about for all of the things I'm sure we'll get into that I don't like about the Mormon church. One thing that I do like about the Mormon church that I've had a hard time knowing how I would replicate this for my own family is that you don't choose who you go to church with, right? It's just based on like a geographical boundary. So that's what's considered a ward. So that means that you go to church with people that, depending on how the boundaries are, like are very different from you in terms of, you know, maybe socioeconomic standing or if they're more diverse, like race or age, like people aren't selecting which church they want to go to based on which minister they like or which music is better or whatever. It's just like based on much easier, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't like have what I've perceived in other Christian faiths is kind of like you get to choose. And like, as a result, some churches are really affluent or some churches are mostly young families or some are just all the old people or there's only black churches or, you know, like whatever that is. So like, that is one thing. So yeah, at the smallest level, there's considered a ward. And then the next like boundary above that is called a stake. So that would be like multiple wards all come together to make a stake. And then a stake above that, there's an area. It kind of goes like that. So yeah, you go to what's considered like a ward. And that would be like your home congregation that like you go to, you participate with the same people. If people move in and out of the boundaries, they obviously become part of your congregation or your ward. And there's all this like language around like, you know, ward families and that sort of thing. So I grew up going to church from the time I was little until I moved out of my house with pretty much the same people, give or take people who moved in or out. You have to, in some ways, you're forced to worship with people that you don't agree with. You know, even within the Mormon faith or any faith, I think there's a diaspora of thought and practice. And so, like, you... You know, people say things that you're like, blah, that's not right. Or, you know, whatever. And yeah, I've one thing that I, you know, as I've gotten older and I've had my own child that like, like the community aspect of Mormonism is so strong. And I think part of it is because of that geographical kind of boundary. And it's, I mean, it depends on area to area, like in the Bay, it's like, there was so much movement in our ward within our ward because people are constantly coming and going. So I think it's a a result of like growing up in a rural area where there isn't as much kind of change or whatever, but it's like, I still know everyone that participated in Mormonism or participated in my ward, which like I grew up in a predominantly Mormon area. So it's like, I grew up knowing all of those people, really knowing them, you know? And so as a kid, it's like, 
I knew the old people on my street and I knew the young people. And yeah, just having those relationships that even like now I still have, you know, when I like see people or um, especially when like I was having my own baby, you know, my mom would call and be like, oh, all these people are wondering how you're doing. And like, there was just a real sense of community that I don't know how, like, even now I'm like, my own kid is not going to have that. Like we haven't been able to replicate that, but I think that's important for kids to feel a part of some community. And that's not like even a self-selected community. It's like, just like a larger community, you know? I was asking Rachel about the judgment that also comes with community. Like if the benefit is that you have people you have known since your childhood that care about you, the other side of that coin is the feeling that people are spying on you and reporting back any perceived missteps. But she doesn't really feel that. That could just be because of where I am with the church and what I choose to let be a thing you know if I ever feel anything like that of like being that I'm a certain type of Mormon or not the fear is more like with my immediate so I come you know a lot of like Mormons of a certain generation not so much now but you know big families is like a thing so you know my mom has a lot of siblings and my dad also has a lot of siblings so I grew up very close with not only a church community but a lot of aunts and uncles and cousins that were, you know, for the most part, not everybody, but a lot of people were also Mormon. If I ever feel like, oh, I don't know if someone's like, it's only people that I know like a lot closer, like maybe, you know, aunts and uncles and that sort of thing where it's like, I don't have a close enough relationship with them to be like, here's my status and things, but you could probably guess that like, I am a bit of a different Mormon or I've separated myself from you know, this thing, but like, we just don't talk about it. You know what I mean? So yeah, if anything, I feel that more from like kind of close extended family, but not so much from like the community at large because I don't care. So she doesn't feel a lot of judgment, but that's also a feature of how common it is for kids to leave the church. I don't, I really don't think people are like coming up to my mom at church on Sunday and being like mean and judgy. But I think it's also such a common scenario. There's like this big generational divide. Like I don't have any friends from growing up that are still currently Mormon, not a single one. So I think as a result, our parents' generation, certainly our grandparents, like it's a shared experience, I think, for Mormon parents to have their kids no longer participate in the faith that they raised them in. In some ways, maybe that's kind of changed some of the judgment, which maybe would have been present a generation back or so, um, just because it was less common. But now everyone has kids or a kid or whatever who's like not associating at all. And so it's like they don't want to be asked about their kid and they're not going to ask about someone else's, you know. I shared with Rachel some of the reasons that people are leaving the evangelical church, things like racial justice and restrictions around sexuality, and asked if these were some of the same reasons that folks were leaving Mormonism. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a bit of all of the above, really. I mean, everyone everyone has their own reasons, but the Mormon church makes a lot of like really strong truth claims about its origin and like it, that it's the one kind of true church, right? So. I don't know if it's more common in Mormonism, but I feel like it is that like when people leave the church, it's not like they're going and searching for something else. 
you're either Mormon and based on the truth kings and how you grew up and how you view the church, it's really hard to just go and then like become some other kind of Christian. Um, And so a lot of people leave because basically they have issues with a doctrine or a principle and there's no way to reconcile it other than because everything like layers on everything, you know? So it's like, if one of those pieces falls away for somebody and they can't have enough faith or whatever to reconcile it, there's really nowhere else. Everything else breaks down. Like doctrinally, everything breaks down. And so that's what ultimately I think happens for a lot of people. But that starts with a lot of those issues that you brought up, especially for a younger generation where that's so important, you know, like- yeah, gender and sexuality issues, history of racism in the church, history of, or for women, you know, or for men, right? But just like having it be like a patriarchal structure. And there's no movement with that because the patriarchal structure is based on doctrines around priesthood power and, you know, stuff like that. So it might start with an individual issue and then it just breaks down from there. It sounds like a lot of Mormons start with the same deconstruction issues that evangelicals have. Rachel was in the Women's Empowerment Network at work with me, so I know that the patriarchy issues stick in her craw. But what other issues is she not aligned with the church? Oh, there's like a million things. (laughs) So, yeah, there's, I mean, I'm kind of, you know, I guess this is a bigger, it's something I've been thinking about a little bit where it's like, In some ways I I have some level of practice still, but I don't like believe in a lot of really anything. (laughs) I mean, there's things I do believe in, but like my faith at this point is like uh, pretty non-existent. The only thing I feel confident in saying is I don't know everything. Yeah, I mean, I wish I could even say, oh yeah, I have some belief in God or even a higher power or something. And like, I think there's parts of it that I'm like, I really want to believe that like some genderless higher power thing. I want to believe that, but it's, I don't know. I mean, right now, I don't know that I can say stick something in it. This is like a really firm belief that I have. Yeah. I don't know that I have any of those, which is yeah. Disorienting. You get it, right? She's not sure where she's at now. She's a wanderer. She grew up in this very Mormon community, went to college in Philadelphia where she attended a student ward. And as her circle has grown, the Mormons around her have gotten less and less. And that's not solely because she moved out of her rural Idaho town. She looks around now, friends from high school and college and... I don't know very many of them that like practice still. So, There's times where I'm like, why have I not just completely separated? And I think there's, there's multiple reasons why, but one of them is that I'm like, I don't know for myself personally, that my buy-in has ever been so strong, (laughs) even though I was raised in it and whatever, like, I don't know. I don't know that I ever totally bought in. So as a result, it's like, I can stay in this place of just limbo or whatever it is that I'm in dissonance or like I don't know if this is true or not it's like I can exist in this space a little bit more comfortably for longer than a lot of my friends who like had a lot more buy-in and what I mean by buy-in is like 
they served missions for the church. They believed it 100% and like felt that they were so certain about it. I've never been that type of Mormon. Even when I think about myself in my youngest times or like youth camps or whatever, where people like profess to know these things, I never really like felt that. And I was talking to my friend who was a lifer. When I met her, um, she's like older than I am. And I met her in Pennsylvania and she was one of those people that I'm like, this is a lifelong thing for her. She's not going anywhere. She's so committed to Mormonism, whatever. And she recently in the last couple of years has like really distanced herself. So I was asking her that and she's like, I think, yeah, when you really buy in and then when you start having issues with like doctrine or truth claims, there's nowhere else to go except for like directly the opposite direction. Right. Whereas for me, I've never been like, I know this for sure. And maybe as a result, I've been able to be just in this like limbo phase or like, I don't know, maybe not, or maybe, you know, for so much longer. This is an interesting theory for me. I don't have a whole lot of hurt from my disconnection with evangelicalism. And I think part of that is the buy-in factor. Yes, I believed in the core tenets, but I was never 100% bought in that the church had the ultimate claim on truth. If you do buy into that, then of course there would be exponential distress when you start seeing cracks in that truth. Yeah, if that crack is like, it just becomes a chasm. Rachel's ability to maintain in this disconnect is also due to her location and her personal privilege. Just as much as I'm not certain this is true, I'm also like not certain of any truth claim anywhere in the world (laughs) about any religion or any God or any belief. But I stay in Mormonism for now because it's what I know and it's my community. I have privilege because I'm not, you know, I'm not a person of color. I like... You know, and so there is comfort for me here. I don't have to make those same decisions that other people do, and I support them when they make them. You know, I am a woman, and so if there ever is, like, how can I, <laughs> how can I stay in this and be a, a woman? That's definitely the, I guess, where my privilege breaks down a bit, but I'm a white woman. And but one of the things that holds Rachel to the religion is cultural. You know, my partner is more committed than I am at this point or um, has been. Um, It's not like we got married under this pretense that like we believed 100% the same things. And he's always known that. But like, you know, I guess I've grown in my disbelief in the 10 years that we've been married. And so, you know, there is a bit of that too, where it's like, I don't know. I mean, like, I've thought a lot about like, if I completely stop going to church, completely distance myself, like to even the extent of like taking my name away from the records of the church so that like they couldn't contact me or they didn't know where I was or whatever. It's like, I think I would still culturally identify as Mormon because for me, it is my ancestry that, and that's not the case for all Mormons, right? Like there's a lot of Mormons that like joined or like, even like my husband, his family didn't like come across the plains as pioneers and that's not his family history but that is my family history my family history is like stock mormon settled the town i live in my cultural background if i could claim any cultural background is like mormonism you know so it's like 
oh yeah, I, I know what that means to like be able to be back in my circle and like be able to pick up on things or like just know what the culture is that someone from the outside wouldn't. It's in some ways my heritage and there's things I think that I would claim about at least the the heritage and the culture part of it, if not like any of the religious and doctrinal part. Right. Family being important, being hardworking, all those kind of like pioneer, I guess, attributes. I want to say honesty, kind of like salt of the earth, like, <laughs> you know, I don't know. In some ways it's like not that different than just kind of the Western persona of people who are from you know, the Mountain West or whatever. And so maybe it's not specific to, to Mormonism, but, you know, Mormonism did really shape the Mountain West in a big way. So, but yeah, being like ingenuitive, community oriented, um, even if that's not a religious community, um, service oriented. And then of course the missionary work aspect of the Mormon church is so well known, you know, people, that's the weird thing too, is it's like, while so much of it is focused in the out mountain West, it's like a lot of people do have some global experience. Like people speak all these languages, you know, my husband speaks Mandarin Chinese or, you know, like whatever. So there is some global influence or globalism that I think is a part of me. That's probably influenced by that. I'm totally feeling what she's saying about the cultural component. Even if you walk away from the religion, it's still your culture. Like, my culture is Anglo-Saxon Protestant through and through. My ancestors came to the U.S. as pastors with a flock who couldn't get along in their country of origin. Mm-hmm, Protestants. So we're contrarians, rebels who follow God, hard workers, servants, polite. So she's been feeling okay living in a disconnect, but it's been coming to a head with a big life change. We're having a lot more discussions around it recently because we have a kid now. So all of these things that are like hypothetical or philosophical or whatever are starting to feel like we have to make decisions about how we participate, what we show to our daughter or what we let her participate in. And that's been hard. Do we baptize our child in this church? Do we uh, take her to a church where all of the leadership are mostly white men and that she sees that? And does that align with all the other things that we value? That's been, I think, why some of those conversations and things have been like expedited in the last since we had a since we had a kid. And we've been able to figure out a way so far. I mean, she's only she's just barely two. The first thing in a Mormon church, you bless your children, which is like when they're little, you know, I think some, some faiths, like they baptize their children and the Mormon faith, Latter-day Saint, LDS faith, um, you don't baptize until at the earliest age, eight years old. Oh, okay. But you do do a blessing, which is just like kind of a ceremony where like someone, a member of the priesthood, so a man blesses your baby with a name they put their hands on the baby's head they say the name officially and then they just give them like a blessing for their life what they hope will be in their life or what particular traits they might whatever I know and so that was the first thing right as she was born that we were like okay this is immediate (laughs) yeah this is immediate are we gonna bless our kid in the church and how are we gonna navigate that first scenario 
Um, and for us, we were able to like figure out a way to do it that felt like it was honoring both sides of what we wanted. So for us, that meant like we didn't do it in the church. We got permission to just do it with our family. And while it was my husband and all the men in our family who ordinated the blessing, the little program after was all women, aunts and grandmas and stuff, you know, either saying the prayers or giving testimony or whatever that was like, that was all, you know, women in our family, (laughs) you know, so that was the way that we got around that. And also like blessing of a child isn't technically like what we would consider in the church an ordinance. So I was like, it's just a tradition. We'll just do it with our family. Like we'll counter out like the patriarchy, (laughs) the matriarchy, like we can figure out a way to make this work. They don't have anything figured out after that. Baptism is potentially the next step in a Mormon child's life. Here's how that would work depending on the culture. Yeah, the idea is that they choose, right? So the age of eight is like the earliest you can get baptized. And that's based on the idea that, yeah, at eight years old, you're old enough, I guess, to make more of a conscientious decision of if that's something that you're prepared to do or not. Yeah. But I would say culturally, like, like, especially if that's the community that they grow up in, like I did, most everybody gets baptized at eight, you know, because that's just like what happened. But I will say like, so much of it is regional though, too, you know, like getting back to like, how have I been able to be in this space for so long? It's like, the church is also made up of the people in the Bay. It's like, we had lots of gay members of our ward, lots of feminist members of our ward, the leadership while they were mostly male, you know, were like, for the most part, sympathetic to the issues and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I actually taught the eight-year-old kids. That was like my calling for a portion of the time I was in Alameda. And so it wasn't the culture for everybody to just get baptized at eight. There were a lot of kids that were like, yeah, I'm not sure. And parents that supported that. And it was like, there was no cultural pressure or judgment or whatever, if that happened, or they had one parent who was believing and participating and another who wasn't. And so they were like, we're going to wait until, you know, like until whatever, like until the kid is, you know, 18 or, but in a very Mormony kind of area, most kids, I would say there's like the culture that you just get baptized at eight. I explained to Rachel the attitude about homosexuality within the Evangelical Church of California Central Valley that we've heard is common throughout the U.S. Evangelical Church. She confirmed it's the same in Mormonism. But again, the experience within the church will be different depending on the community. My experience somewhere in a really, you know, more conservative Mormon area is people would not feel comfortable being out at all. I didn't know anybody that was out growing up in my wards or whatever. Being in the Bay, you know, I mentioned for a time I worked with like the eight-year-old kids, but most of my time during that was working specifically with teenage age youth. And I would say like a quarter to a third of our youth were on the spectrum of bisexual, gay, trans, like. Not fully straight. (laughs) Yeah, not fully straight, yeah. And that was awesome for me to be like, oh, like it, like, you know, like I grew up not having any youth in the programs that I participate in as a youth being out. Certainly now as adults, I have a lot of people I went to church with that are now out. 
um, particularly my age and generation. I think it was funny. My best friend who I grew up with, she was like, isn't it so wild to think that like half of our Sunday school class is now out? And I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, you're right. Like I hadn't really thought about it, but yeah, like, and this is in like rural Idaho, you know, kind of counting through my hand, you know, her included. She's engaged right now. Her and her partner are going to get married sometime next year. But she's like, isn't that so wild to think about? I'm like, yeah, it is. But yeah, in the Bay, I think that's a huge disconnect, right? Because there is more understanding. There's more visibility, but the doctrine ultimately does not support it. So wards can be accepting, individual members can be accepting, but it breaks down at at a certain doctrinal level, right? Uh, For Mormons, a big concept is like eternal families, that the family unit is eternal, that marriage is eternal. So like when you see big Mormon temples, there's lots of things that, you know, happen in Mormon temples, but, you know, obviously a big one that people associate with is the ceiling, um, which is the equivalent of like marriage. That's what that is saying is you are sealed to your partner for eternity, for all of your life. (laughs) And that that is only between a man and a woman. I mean, that's the only acceptable right now. That's the only acceptable gender pairing for, for that ordinance to take place. So we can say that we're accepting and loving and, and like at a macro level that happens, I think it also doesn't happen, right? There's incredible hurt and scenarios dependent on the ward, but yeah, it breaks down at a certain point because doctrinally, like the church doesn't support gay members. There's discord between the doctrine and like the practice. And so for me, like of the many issues, that's, that's like a, that's the number one, that's major for me, how to reconcile that. That basically just crushed my soul, what you just said, because it's like, it's already so distressing for folks to not be accepted, not, you know, have their marriages acknowledged, whatever. But then what you just added on was like eternal life with a partner, right? So it's not even like crappy for their lifetime, but it's like crappy for... (laughs) a millennia alone that's Mm -hmm. the most depressing shit I've ever heard (laughs) yeah yeah exactly well and like what are the choices then you know like there are no options for our brothers and sisters in this thing and I like hate like even in the church like they always just say same-sex attraction they never actually say I mean they're starting to right but like not really (laughs) they say same-sex attraction they do acknowledge that it's not a choice. Okay. It's a mm-hmm. step in the right direction. Sure. And that's been like recent. At least there's that, right? But it's like, that's almost worse <laughs> because you can either go behind the idea that this is a choice and then as therefore it's a sin because you're choosing it. And like, then it stops there, right? You're sinning. There's lots of different things people can do to sin, but it makes it, better and harder when they say we acknowledge that it's not a choice so then what does that mean about the nature of God and God's character and if he creates people this way which I believe if I do believe in God that he does or she does or they do then 
like why would he have a church and policies and procedures that exclude them from happiness right yeah he wouldn't or they wouldn't strip away religion strip away whatever i'm like philosophically does the concept of truth like if there are things that are true can truth cause harm like if it's true is one of the characteristics of truth that it like causes harm in 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 many ways you know like obviously you can deduct how that applies to this issue but um yeah i don't know i'm just like when you're like can you like can i make any claims on like what i know to be true it's really hard for me because yeah i'm like i don't know what is true but i know that like if there is something that's true then that means it's eternal and it's the same for everyone and i don't think that something that's true can cause harm it not only does it not cause harm but it's not exclusive because if it's true everyone has equal access to the truth yeah i just i cannot like i just can't reconcile it so it's really super hard and so then i go to this place of like well there's gay members in the church there's gay youth in the church I'm sympathetic to this issue, not just sympathetic, like I'm like, I'll fight for this issue. So am I better being in the church advocating or out of the church, just like they'll figure it out. (laughs) And there's a lot of hurt that's going to happen in the process. So if there's a way, you know, talking about why I don't just leave Mormonism, it's because in some ways I'm like hoping to, I know that like things can't change at a certain level. Like I know that I cannot change the doctrine, but I can change the culture, at least in my immediate small sphere, I hope, right? Oh boy, I've heard this dilemma before. Is it better to stay and try to make it better for people, even when you see those local efforts break down due to doctrine and practice at the highest level? Or are you perpetuating harm simply by remaining within the institution? For now, Rachel is remaining, but she has to make decisions about what she can participate in, like the child blessing she mentioned. Here's another example. Yeah, that's that's also like the, the weird like dissonance that I have all the time where I'm like, I'm participating in this thing. So I have to figure out a way that like, I can try and participate and not cause harm. So it's like things like Mormons pay tithing. When I pay tithing, I give that over to the church, 10% of my income, which my husband and I have done for, you know, a large portion of our relationship. And lately I've been like, don't know if I can do that anymore. I've even asked the questions, can I define where that goes to? Can, can you promise me that that goes to humanitarian efforts or can you promise me that goes to refugee initiatives or if it goes towards building temples or, you know, all of these things that I like, cause I don't, I don't have a temple practice in my life anymore because I, I'm like, I, I cannot understand how I can participate in what the temple represents. And then like also say that I'm an advocate for this this thing so I basically had to like redefine my relationship in certain ways that I practice within Mormonism so that I don't just feel like an icky person to say like I give lip service to this thing and not even just lip service like 
I've, I participate, I volunteer, I advocate whatever for this issue and other things that are kind of like seemingly in, you know, in competition with the church, but like, I also can't then be in the church in certain ways and pay my tithing and not know where it goes to, or, you know, so then I've had to decide like, what is my, how can I keep that relationship with the church healthy, if at all? And then I choose how to change those behaviors. Here's another example. I won't teach certain lessons, you know, because every Sunday, everybody in the church has lessons on the same. The Mormon church is very organized. So if you're in like Zimbabwe or Mongolia or Detroit, like the same lesson will be taught. Obviously not the same, but like the guidelines for what that lesson is going to be about this certain scripture or whatever, like the teacher obviously is teaching it and they have the ability to teach it how they want to. So as a teacher, I would either say, no, I will not teach this lesson or this is how I'm going to teach it. (laughs) If I get a lesson about modesty, for example, I could teach the lesson about modesty to these teenage girls about what they put on their body or not. Or I could teach about, modesty being like a value of the heart and there's definitely a lot of mormons who support like there's a lot of progressive more like you wouldn't believe it but i'm sure it's this way with any faith you know there's feminist mormons i can find materials to support teaching lessons a certain way online yeah there's a lot of support for that and so there is some rigor around it but again it's like when does that break down? You know, when does that just ultimately, yeah, come to a head with like certain things that have happened in the church history or certain doctrines or whatever, like there's only so far you can run with it. And then I guess at that point, you either have to be comfortable with the dissonance, you have to be comfortable with the discomfort, or you have to say, I don't know. I'm not certain about anything. I think I flex between those three things. But I stay in Mormonism for now because it's what I know and it's my community. Rachel mentioned that she, a woman, is allowed to teach. In the evangelical church, women are permitted to teach children and other women, though some churches even have guidelines for the age of children that women are allowed to teach. Rachel said that it's similar in Mormonism. But this sent us down a whole rabbit hole of Mormon theology, specifically priesthood powers. Women can participate, yeah, in in many different callings, but none of them that require the priesthood. So having the priesthood is like a male power that's believed to be like passed down from the priesthood from biblical to, you know, Mormonism basically makes a claim that like during the dark ages and after Jesus Christ was crucified and all the apostles died and everything, the priesthood was lost. And then what's called like the restoration or like where Mormonism and the story kind of picks up is like Joseph Smith prays about which church is true or not. He gets the answer that none of them are true. He is then visited by God and told that there's this book that's buried in the mountainside in upstate New York. And he's guided to go find this book. And it's in like reformed Egyptian. It's like metal plates. He translates this book with the help of a tool. And that's what the Book of Mormon is. 
And the Book of Mormon is a supplement to Old Testament, New Testament. We study those things together. And with all of that also came the restoration of the priesthood power on the earth today. And the way that it came back was like two angels came and restored this power to Joseph Smith. And then he had the ability to give that to other people. And the priesthood power is essentially, it's God's power on earth today, right? It's like a functional power, you know, in terms of like prophecy, you know, so we have a prophet in our church, the head of the church, like obviously has priesthood power. And then it disseminates from him to all worthy men in the church. Oh, yep. There's levels of priesthood and 12 for, for boys is when they can start participating and they get their own priesthood power. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can administer blessings. You can bless the sacrament. So like we take a sacrament every Sunday on church that is made possible through priesthood power of like 12 year old boys or whatever, blessing bread and water, passing it around any of the ordinances that take place. So getting married or sealed in the temple, getting baptized, you know, all of these ordinances or what are called saving ordinances, those are all performed through the power of the priesthood. You know, women don't have it, so they're all performed by men. But now women participate in callings and like the organization and the structure of the church at very high levels, but not anything that requires the priesthood. A woman wouldn't be ordained to the priesthood, but that doesn't mean there haven't been efforts to change that. A couple years ago, there was like a movement within the Mormon church called Ordain Women. And it was like at the largest level of the church. Is her name Kate Kelly or Kathleen Kelly, I think. Okay. Anyway, and she kind of spearheaded it and it was based off this belief. Mormons believe that like doctrine is eternal, but that there's not like a, there's not like a cap on it, you know? there's forthcoming knowledge and information and doctrine that will continue to come forward. So while doctrine can't change, it can be like added to. Okay. So she found all of this like evidence to support the concept that women once had the priesthood and that they can have the priesthood again or priestesshood or whatever you want to call it. And there was this like big movement, 2011, 2013, sometime around there, women saying like, we're calling for ordination. We want to be ordained because there's no way that we can be equitable in the church at the highest level unless we have ordination. Like that is the only way to be on equal footing with men. And she got excommunicated, I think. So, Kathleen Marie Kelly, known as Kate Kelly, was indeed excommunicated in 2014. She's a human rights lawyer and activist who founded Ordain Women, an organization advocating for the ordination of women to the priesthood in the LDS church. Local church leaders requested Kelly to cease her campaign. She subsequently demonstrated on Temple Square during the church's general conference, after which she was excommunicated in absentia after declining to attend a disciplinary council. She instead submitted a written defense through her representative Nadine Hansen, a fellow Mormon feminist attorney, and hundreds of letters on her behalf from supporters. In the weeks before and after her excommunication, Kelly urged followers to stay in the church and, quote, raise hell if they could do so while maintaining their mental and emotional health. Kelly appealed her excommunication to her stake president, then to the church's first presidency, all of whom rejected the appeal. 
I was trying to encourage Rachel to remind her that change is possible. What Kate did didn't work, but that doesn't mean it didn't start the wheels of change. Eventually leads to change, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and I think I totally agree with that. And for me, it's just how do I do that and not cause harm at the same time? And can I do that? I don't know. I think a lot of people have decided they can't do that. And sometimes I feel stupid for like, like that's my biggest, my biggest fear is like, am I causing harm by staying a part of this thing? Or am I doing good or... Yeah, that's the big, for me, that's the big challenge, a daily, weekly challenge. Okay, we're shifting back to those ordinances or commitments involving the priesthood. Let's talk more about what happens in church and about what goes down in those flashy temples. Temple worship is like the pinnacle of like a Mormon's practice. So there's Mormons that go to the temple every week, for example. What happens in the weekly temple thing? Oh, there's all sorts of things. So basically, <laughs> Mormons have a belief that like you have you you have these certain covenants or commitments that you make to God, right? Throughout your life. The first one is like when you're baptized, you make a covenant to God that you will do certain things. The sacrament every week is a reminder of your baptism. So you make covenants like you'll always remember him. Uh, There's like five. I can't even tell you all of them. Okay, I can Google it. Whatever. So when you're eight, that's the first covenant that you make with God. That just happens like in a church, you're like baptized in the water. All your sins go away. You also receive the Holy Ghost at the same time of baptism, which is like we believe in that there's God, Jesus Christ, and then the Holy Ghost, right? Which like the Trinity or whatever. But we believe that there are three separate. It's called the Godhead. They're separate. So receiving the Holy Ghost is a priesthood ordination. They put your hands on your head and they you receive the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost basically acts as like a protector or like what's Jiminy Cricket like a yeah like a conscience like a conscience it provides both spiritual and physical protection to you that's the first thing you do you get baptized and then every week or whenever you take the sacrament basically the sacrament prayers they repeat the promises that you made at baptism so it's about recommitting weekly or whenever you take whenever you feel like taking the sacrament you can go to church and be like i i can't take the sacrament this week because i whatever you know so taking the sacrament is a covenant that can happen hundreds of times in your life then the next one would be like the endowment that's then an even higher level of commitment to to god and then there's like different covenants that take place as part of the endowment And in some ways, they're not any, it's like they all build upon like the baptism, you know? So where I get confused is the difference between Sunday church service and the temple practice. Is it the same? Most Mormons go to church every Sunday. And the the reason that you go to church is to take the sacrament, number one. That's what the purpose of Sundays are for. So you go to church, you sing a song, you say a prayer. You take the sacrament and then 
congregations from the church speak. So it's kind of like Quakers, like I know a bit about Quakerism. So it's like, we don't have a sermon or something from our priests every week. Oh, okay. It's like members of the congregation who speak. What do they talk about? Uh, they're assigned like a loose topic and then they, they give a talk. It's one of my favorite things actually in the church. Heck yeah, I love discussion. Uh, it's not a discussion in the sense that they're not teaching a lesson, but they're giving a talk like an oration. Okay. With that comes people who are incredible speakers and with that comes people who are horrible speakers and say things that aren't true and are weird. But I love it. I mean, I love public speaking. And it's cool because you can say whatever you want. <laughs> I mean, for the most part, you can say what you want. I was asked on like International Women's Day a couple years ago to give a talk on like the legacy of Mormon women past and present. So I gave this like totally feminist thing about Mormon women. Four weeks out of the month, it's that. And then there is what's called a testimony meeting the first Sunday of every month, okay. which is like, feels more kind of like probably evangelical in nature where anybody can stand up and just bear testimony of anything that they want. So what, what are some things they might talk about? whatever anybody wants to say. It's what you believe. Yeah. Something that you can say, like, I believe this to be true. So there's like, so um, that right now. No, I haven't borne my testimony in a really, really long time. No, you're on a testimony break right now. Yeah. I'm on a testimony break, but you could stand up and say that, you know, you could stand up and be like, yeah, I don't really have a testimony of these things. This is why it's hard for me. You could say that if you wanted, but you know, a lot of times it's like people, Again, there's a range. It's like sometimes people stand up and like tell you some sob story for like whatever's happened in their week or their life. Please pray for me. Please pray for my mom who's in the hospital. You know, there's like that certain stuff that goes on. There's people that like stand up and say things that like shatter your brain because of how thoughtful and um, yeah, how thoughtful and inclusive and whatever they are. There's people that stand up that say stuff that you're like, sit down there's been times that um that there's been a couple times in my life in various words where people have stood up and said things and that are like very untrue or, or hurtful or harmful and like the bishop he sits on the stand every sunday with his counselors and like there's been a few times where i've seen them like stand up and say like you can't say that or so it's not just like a free-for-all but i feel like the line for that is pretty high you know like the one time I think this was in Alameda, there was a guy that was just kind of like kooky and he said something about like black people, like why, like being like a sin of Cain and Abel. I don't even know. He said something like that. And the bishop like stood up and was just like, you can't, like, that's not, you know, whatever. But on the flip side, you can go find a um, video of a girl who stood up and bear her bore her testimony. This has happened a couple years ago, like a, quite a young girl who stood up and bore her testimony about being gay and that that's how her heavenly parents made her. And, you know, I don't know if it was the bishop or who it was, but stood up and asked her to stop. So, you know, you can find, but it doesn't happen. Like I'm saying in my experience, that's only happened a couple of times. And it's always been on the side of like, this is harmful and not doctrine accurate. And like, you're a little bit like, 
So there is a limit. It's like a cane that comes out. And it's just like, <laughs> no. Oh, so what I was saying is like in the temple, then you perform these ordinances for yourself. You make these covenants with God for yourself only one time. The rest of the time when people go to temples, they're doing those ordinances for the dead. Okay, up until this point, Mormonism doesn't seem that different from evangelicalism. Baptism, communion, testimony, prayer, patriarchy, you know. But this part is new for me. Oh, but why though? <laughs> so Mormonism believes in eternity, right? Yes, I got that much. So with that, they believe that our life didn't begin when we were born. Okay. And it doesn't end when we die. So before we were born, we were like spirits. Mm -hmm. And after we die, we continue to be spirits. And the way that like Mormon church tries to like equalize that the concept of like access, you know, because there's like this idea that like, why? Because you're born in a certain place or a certain time period and you are able to make these covenants, but this person in the you know, 1700s or, or this person who's born in present day, wherever, where the church doesn't exist, like how, so what they don't, they don't get to accept Christ or they don't get to make these covenants that will ultimately save them. Like, what about them? Right. So after you do your covenants, you just do that once for your whole life. And then you, in the temples, the work that you do is for in proxy of people who have yet to perform those ordinances for themselves. Okay. Is there like a schedule? Do you like sign up for specific people or how do you manage that? Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so in the temple, there's something that's called baptisms for the dead, which sounds super weird, but there's like, right. One of the ordinances that you can participate if you're a living member of the church is you get baptized. Okay. If that's a necessary step to have eternal life, Everyone has to have access to do that, like with a physical body is the belief, right? So as a youth, I would go do baptisms for the dead in the temple. So there's a font with water and I would perform a baptism or like 20 in a row or something or how, or five or however many, and they would go through exactly like what my baptism was when I was baptized as Rachel. They like give you the names of people that have gone before and they physically perform the ordinance but you're the body you're standing in is that person wow dude <laughs> yeah and then those and then the idea is that those people in the spirit world or in eternity they can then choose to accept or reject that there still is choice involved right so it's like the physical body is like, you want this. And then they can be like, yes, or hard pass. Yeah. Do you want this? If you want this, this work has been performed for you physically. There has been a proxy for your physical body to take this covenant upon you. And like, if you want it, great, it's done. If not, you still have a choice in that. I it sounds weird. care in that because like, sounds weird. Angelicals, it's just like, they basically believe the same thing, but they're just like, well, all those people that died and didn't know they just go to hell. So, oh, really? 
So yeah. at least like you all are like trying to do something for millions of yeah. people. <laughs> yeah. So the Mormons really are super into like ancestry. Like Mormons lead the charge for like if you ever get into doing your ancestry or genealogy. I mean, a lot of older Mormons, like my grandparents, they do something called indexing, which is like going through and like indexing the records of old census things or people's hand like the church essentially owns they don't own it but they do the most work on like a global scale right for ancestry and genealogy and they have incredible libraries and resources they own all the programs yeah like if you ever get into that if you ever want to like trace your ancestry back to like the beginning of time you'll use a system that the Mormon church has developed. Right. And so, and the, the foundation of all of that is because the family is eternal. And families are linked. Like we are all, the belief is like, we are all a global, like we call each other brother and sister in the church. When we say sister, it's just like, we're literally that standing in for saying like, you are my sister, you are my brother. Yeah. When people stand up to announce who's going to speak next, they might say, Sister Luthie is going to share her thoughts about whatever. And it's to remind us that the whole family, everyone that will ever be on the earth is, is an eternal family and we're all linked together. Yeah. And I like that aspect. I mean, I like that thought. Mormons also don't believe in like heaven and hell in a binary way. You either accept Christ and you go to heaven or you don't accept his name and you go to hell. That's not part of the belief. So Mormons believe that there's like very few people that will actually go to hell. So what is the purpose of doing all the ordinances for dead people then? So there's degrees of glory within heaven. Ah, okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. So they're medium place in heaven. Mm-hmm. There's the celestial kingdom and that is the highest that's like you live with god in the celestial kingdom and that's like celestial glory you 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 become a god if you yeah that's the goal you become a god and we also believe that like our god now went through the same process that we are in there's like many gods so there's yeah so there well and mormons believe there's infinite worlds that there's yeah that there's infinite we needed more than an hour for this conversation yeah i know but yeah mormons believe that like this scenario or whatever that like we all have the ability to become like god like if we if we're made in his image like what that means yeah book says yeah if we're made in his image that we have the ability to like transcend to his level which means like we believe that god went through and had a human experience he had a body he experienced all these things and ultimately that like that cycle is just playing over for all of us and like that's what a millennia is or that's what whatever but that there's worlds without end so the stresses me out thinking about yeah it's it's definitely stressful but there is this whole like for mormonism there's this whole cosmic there's a very like yeah, big kind of cosmic, super far out there, like, which nobody, you know, it's all theorized and it is doctrinal, but like no one, no one knows. Again, there's all this thought around it that 
you can go into that and there's people that spend their whole lives trying to support what that means, how that happens metaphysically. (laughs) There's all that sort of stuff. But yeah, like at the highest level of heaven, you become like God, which means you become a God yourself and you create worlds without end and you then are in that role. Yeah. So, and then there's like, can you be a God? Yeah. But that's where, again, it's like, there's all this like Mormon feminist thought about like there is openings for is God they and is there's a big push lately in the Mormon church to recognize that there's always been a heavenly mother because if we are like God and we are his spirit children then we have a mother but again it's like that's a cool concept and that we're like oh finally recognizing a woman in motherhood but it's it's like not progressive in the fact that it's a male and a female that creates a child an eternal you know so you know it's like I go to that all the time like oh there's all this space in Mormonism to like look at these things that are you know different and progressive and out there and whatever and then at the same time it's like no because but I don't know there's again there's if you're Mormon and you could like dive into like all of the thought around like there's a lot out there that people people yeah. going through but yeah you don't just like go they say that like hell with what we would think of as like in an evangelical sense that there's like only a handful of people that god will be able to count on his right hand the people that go to hell so there's not that like fear i guess i never grew up with that level of fear and we say like the levels of heaven it's like even the lowest level of heaven is what we consider earth life here to be so I'm like, I'm fine with that. <laughs> fine. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a nice idea that people aren't just doomed to hell. The worst they'll probably get after this life is just another earth life. I explained to Rachel that the idea of hell really drives evangelical missions. The default is that all humans are bound for fiery torment unless they accept the gift or sacrifice that Jesus made when he died. So missions are to get that message out and save people. Without hell, why do Mormons do so many missions? I think a similar belief in like having people come into Christ, understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ as Mormons understand it. So it's not so much motivated by like, Ooh, if they don't hear this, they're going to hell. It's not that. It's more like the church would say, we know that the doctrines of the family of repentance of jesus christ like the things that are contained in the mormon church that they will make people's lives better that they'll make them happier more whole more at peace more yeah able to deal with life like it will give them community so i don't think it's like any one particular thing like the only thing you kind of hear is like the role of missionaries is to help our brothers and sisters come unto Christ. And then what that means is different for every person. Let's talk about leaving the church. Rachel asked what it looks like to leave an evangelical church, which though emotionally and relationally difficult, it's definitely less involved than leaving Mormonism. 
I would say the le- there's like people who just don't participate in Mormonism and then like there's a big thing lately where it's like you take you remove your name from the record of the church like right. you write a letter you say like I'm dissolving my baptism like all those comments like I am no longer so that's like I think the final step for a lot of people emotionally or whatever to be like totally disassociated with the church what does that look like for an evangelical is it the same or so I would say it's like not as intense like I just stop going you just like stop going now there are churches where there's like membership and so at churches like that you might have to be like okay take me off the membership Rob. Mm-hmm. yeah and it's not as like organized right it's not as like global right because you could leave one church and then just like join another no one will know right no one will know they'll be like oh they're not coming anymore we can call them but like yeah that sounds so easy (laughs) yeah Yeah. here it's like your records even like your membership in the church like i don't know how it works it's like it follows you right it's like astounding the organization I asked Rachel if she's ever felt the presence of God, which is a really difficult question for people in this season of disbelief. But here's Rachel's answer. I don't know, I'm in this stage where I'm like, anytime that I think that I could have like felt something that could have been God or the divine or whatever, it's like these really emotional, emotionally charged situations. So the pessimist in me goes, I'm doubting those things the birth of my child for example I had a like a near-death experience and the flip side of that is I in the moment or at the time had this like intense spiritual experience that I can't I can't explain how that existed other and that was very recent I mean that was a couple years like I've been in this faith crises or disbelief for a long time now so um to have that pop up has been like weird and confusing right but then it's so easy for me to be like yeah, I was literally dying and having a baby and whatever. It's a very emotional situation. (laughs) So, and it's like personal what the whole scenario was, but one other time when I was singing in church, just like a routine, Mormons don't get into like guitars and like intense theatric, like Mormon church is so boring, you know, but we do sing hymns and I love a lot of the Mormon hymns. So one time that I like think about, and I was telling my husband, I'm like in all the experiences that I've ever had in my life, I think I can explain away a lot of them as being like emotionally charged or there was an environment that was created that made me feel a certain way that I can now see is like probably not true. But the only one that I'm like have tucked away and this little part of and this little part of me is just normal Sunday service singing a song and just being like super overcome with a deep sense and feeling that like I am loved and that some some force outside of me is responsible for that feeling of self-worth so yeah that would be that would be the one that I kind of can't explain away or that I hold on to a bit One thing we learned today is that not all Mormons are the same. 
again, there's a lot of Mormons in the world and there's a lot of different thought and I'm just one, I'm just one disbelieving Mormon. But yeah. <laughs> and there are Mormons out there struggling, living in a disconnect like Rachel or choosing to walk away from the culture they've grown up in. But I appreciate you, again, including me in the conversation and being willing to listen to the fact that I might become a god someday and um, whatever else that sounds very, that we do baptisms for dead people. It's all cultural, right? I don't think what I believe is nutty, but when I start to explain it to someone else, it comes off a bit batshit. Yeah. Yeah, I will say this is probably the most in-depth I've never, I've ever told or talked to, not told someone. It's not like I divulged anything you can't find by talking to any other Mormon. But yeah, I just don't have conversations like this with like non-Mormon people very often, unless they're like, what the fuck can you explain? X, Y, Z. The underwear. <laughs> yeah, I don't like being judged. So thanks for not judging me. I absolutely will not. <laughs> We've got a couple more faith journeys coming up. So next time you get to meet Tyler. We would go to synagogue and people cared more about what other people were wearing than thinking about God. Or...